Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov. I'm one of the senior editors of Global Summetry. It's my real pleasure today to introduce Stuart Patrick. He is the author of our feature article for volume one, number two. The title of it is New Multilateralism, Minilateral Cooperation, But at What Cost? Welcome, Stuart. Great to be here, Alan. Uh, it's good that, you know, flying around the world, it's good that, to have you come in to the studio to talk a little bit about uh, your feature article. So I wanted to let the audience know who would be listening to this podcast that you are, not that they wouldn't know this already, that you are currently the Senior Fellow and Director of the International Institutions and Global Governance Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. Previously, uh, from 2005 to 2008, you were the research fellow at the Center for Global Development. And from 2002 to 2005, you were a government person. You were at the Secretary of State's policy planning staff. And uh, you had responsibility, I take it, for Afghanistan and a range of global and transnational issues. That's correct. Let me dip then uh, quickly to your feature article, uh, and as I pointed out, it's called New Multilateralism, Minilateral Cooperation, But at What Cost? And you open the piece, I hope everyone will get a chance to read it, uh, you open the piece by being, in fact, quite optimistic about the prospects of the Obama administration and the president himself in 2008 advancing the cause of uh, multilateral engagement on the part of the United States. That's your opening. But then what happens? Right, exactly. I, I do talk about um, the enthusiasm that greeted um, the president, both as a candidate and as uh, in the first couple of years of his presidency. And, you know, he, he, he came in uh, defining himself as the anti-Bush and to some degree the anti uh, caricature of Bush in a sense of uh, this sort of gunslinging uh, cowboy acting, the Lone Ranger acting on his own. Um, and that was, uh, there was a sense that, well, diplomacy is back and uh, multilateralism is back and we'll just roll up our uh, sleeves at the United Nations and other uh, large uh, formal membership uh, organizations and, and we'll get things done as a result of uh, showing a greater uh, willingness to engage. But, but uh, you know, a funny thing happened on the way to uh, to that uh, scenario. And uh, what has happened instead is that for a number of different reasons, uh, out of frustration and um, and uh, concern that international institutions were, in, to some degree, impervious of reform, or that it was too hard, uh, there was a growing sense that well, we really need to um, to explore some of these other. Uh, aspects of, of cooperation. And so I, I outline in the piece, uh, don't want to spoil it so people don't read it, but uh, on the I outline in the piece a number of different uh, strategies that not only the United States has taken, uh, but other countries as well increasingly uh, to try to uh, address issues um, outside of some of these sclerotic international institutions. A while ago, uh, you had written uh, in part that we might have what could be called, what you called, good enough uh, global governance or good enough multilateralism, right? 
uh, you had written that uh, a, a few months ago. And then you, you did a piece with a colleague in which you said, well, global governance is out. Uh, and and in, in our feature article, you raised some real questions around um, this universe now that has been created of um, the informals and a broader scope of uh, organizations than just the formal institutions. So, you know, in effect, I'm asking you a kind of temperature taking at this point. Where are we um, uh, with respect to uh, global governance, global summitry, which we tend to look at here? Where are we, and particularly in the context of U.S. policy? Right. I would say that um, uh, it's we have an – if it were to give it a, a – a, a, a report card. We, I, I have to uh, sort of plead incomplete, uh, but that sounds a little bit like a cop out. I think when I use that phrase, I, what I meant was that you know, uh, faute de mieux, you know, for want of something better, uh, that we have to, in a sense, get used to it uh, because the hurdles of actually uh, going through um, major uh, institutional reform are too great. Uh, it doesn't always necessarily take a crisis, but it's the, the, the headwinds are quite uh, uh, quite strong if you don't have a crisis to, to try to move forward. Um, I guess the, so I, so I made the, I was making the case that look, maybe there's a way for uh, this combination of bottom-up approaches and disaggregated approaches and coalition approaches, et cetera, to, um, to actually make a dent in some of the major global issues that we're talking about. But the proof will definitely be in the pudding. First is the, really the question of does it work and, and does it work for whom? You know, if it's good enough global governance, um, you know, it, uh, are we actually, are actually sure that it's delivering? Is it capable of delivering? And it's unclear right now whether or not informal voluntary arrangements of the sort that are the topic of this article actually work in terms of uh, the the whole being greater than the sum of their parts? Uh, so you have these INDCs, these nationally determined uh, commitments, going into the conference. The assessment by scientists working at the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and others is that that those sorts of the trajectory for uh, greenhouse gas emissions is really only going to be about one-third of the reduction that needs to be made to uh, avoid that threshold of uh, two degrees Celsius that many scientists have dis- uh, dismissed as being uh, imperative. Another issue is this, which I alluded to earlier, which is this question of um, the fact that others can play this game too. Um, and does it undermine international order if you have a world in which there are competing blocks and global fragmentation? To some degree, I think that's tougher in some of the uh, security and strategic areas uh, where um, uh, large powers can use uh, arrangements for to pursue uh, regional hegemony or to advance quite different arrangements. Um, now, I think you can get carried away with that. I think the United States made a mistake in, in coming out so forcefully uh, and, uh, and uh, futilely against the uh, Asia Infrastructure and Investment Bank, which I think it's, you know, the, the proper attitude there should have been, hey, this is wonderful. <laughs> United, the Chinese are actually willing to step up to the plate. They're going to contribute resources to do something that we think is a good thing. Uh, there's a lot, there are a lot of infrastructure needs in that in that part of the world. Uh, so it's something we should have uh, welcomed. And there are institutions where the United States is not always in the driver's seat. So it doesn't always have to be invented here, that is, in the United States, to have uh, to, to, to see something worthwhile. The, the, there are a couple more um, concerning uh, issues. Uh, 
that, that I think merit uh, attention. One of them is what is the role of these informals in reinforcing versus undermining uh, international institutions that we need for their legitimacy, their standing capability, and, and over the long haul. And I think you know the jury is out on that. I use some examples in the paper where it appears that uh, some of these informal mechanisms, like the G20, for instance, during the global financial crisis, have actually helped in strengthen uh, the formal institutions like the IMF uh, to some degree although the governance reform is yet to be implemented, but certainly uh, the World Bank as well. So some institutions getting a second lease on life in part because of, uh, of the actions of the G20. And I think you know, that, that is obviously easier in the G20 context. In other cases, uh, you might uh, not get the same, um, the same sort of, um, of uh, complementarity, and you may create duplication and rivalry. And at the end of the day, there is, uh, my colleague Roland Paris uh, said, uh, uh, is at the University of Ottawa, said, well, at the end of the day, shouldn't international public policy be set by international public institutions? And you know, at first glance, it's a, it's a little bit hard to, uh, to, uh, to argue with him uh, in, in that regard. Now, the final issue is one of, of um, equity, accountability, justice, sort of normative concerns. And one can get carried away with this because when you look at universal institutions like the United Nations General Assembly or uh, quasi-universal ones or ones that potentially any country can be in, like the Human Rights Council, you don't always see uh, a lot of, uh, of those um, goods being, uh, being delivered either. But the question here, I think, is it's much harder to hold sort of informal coalitions accountable for their, um, what they do. Now, uh, John Curtin, a colleague of yours at the University of Toronto, and his team try to try to uh, map those uh, commitments and, and sort of hold the feet to the fire so that you can actually uh, name and shame uh, or at least try to hold leaders accountable. But it can be, uh, it, it, there aren't necessarily mechanisms built in for that. This is going to be an issue, I think, in the aftermath of the Paris uh, COP21, where you know, the question is, who's going to be monitoring these commitments? And uh, so are they credible, uh, just as the issue has been with respect to um, um, in the economic field with respect to the mutual assessment process of, uh, of the G20. And then the final issue is just, uh, there again, there are always trade-offs between efficiency and representativeness. And in some of these cases, uh, particularly when they're not uh, grounded in a charter like the UN Charter or uh, legally binding arrangements, there are often uh, suspicions amongst uh, the sort of 173 or 174, uh, forget the exact number these days, who are not members of the G20, but are UN members. Are, who speaks for whom? And uh, what decisions are they taking that will uh, influence us uh, quite quite directly? So one can't be naive about these things or pretend that within formal institutions, power is also not at work. Uh, but at least there are some um, voice opportunities that uh, weaker powers are given. Those are some of the potential problems and drawbacks, even as we look to informals uh, to provide with some dispatch and uh, with some capacity um, the political goods that, uh, that will help hopefully solve some of these global governance issues. Well, let me ask one final question then. I mean, you, you're... I mean, the obvious retort or response from those who, you know, acknowledge, accept, you know, the global symmetry system as it is, and particularly the informals, uh, would say, well, okay, climate change is a great example. Uh, the, the, you can look at the MEF, which is the 
group of 17 countries, which is kind of a subset of the G20, and they represent the great bulk of, of GHG production. So, uh, you know, the fact that the other 170 whatever aren't there, it, you know, might have a legitimacy element or uh, even a normative element, but, you know, practically, if these people meet their commitments, then we've gone a long way towards dealing with a problem or some way towards dealing with a problem. And then, you know, uh, the, the counterpart to that is, well, okay, so what we need are the scientists and the others within the uh, informals to hold these individuals' feet to the fire. We don't need a Security Council resolution saying you're a bunch of bad boys because, you know, it doesn't seem to me or it doesn't seem to, to those who look at it as being a very helpful kind of uh, um, fill-up uh, to the idea of actually meeting commitments. Yeah, I think that um, in, in an ideal world, um, I think that it's you, you need to have complementarity between uh, okay. the, what happens at the uh, UN, uh, in this case, what happens um, at, within the major economies forum and also other, you know, clean technology partnerships or regional partnerships that involve a subset of countries and um, and what happens in the universal uh, UNFCCC process. We need to hit that sweet spot. I think that, um, because you're absolutely right, that getting the countries in the room that matter to hash out things um, is a really, um, whether it, it's either going to happen there or it's going to happen primarily amongst those same countries within the more encompassing forum. So to some degree, the MEF um, or other uh, minilateral frameworks can serve as uh, what my friend Bruce Jones calls a pre valuable pre-negotiation forum. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that when it works like that, uh, it's terrific. The one difficulty that we've sometimes found uh, both within the G20 and also the major economies forum is that the differences uh, are quite acute uh, in terms of which way to go amongst those actors. Uh, so the same differences that you might find about the relative mm -hmm. uh, responsibility and or commitment, those can continue to arise. The good thing about, frankly, the COP21 is that, that there there's a movement to begin to get beyond that division between Annex 1 and Annex 2 countries. So right. perhaps some of this mini-lateralism has, uh, has borne some fruit in getting beyond sort of stale old debates and at least saying, look, let's show up with uh, nationally determined contributions that will all help uh, in our own way to, uh, and hopefully will add up to something. Okay, and just for the, for the podcast audience, Annex 1 is the advanced established countries, Annex 2 are the developing, the large... Uh, market or emerging market countries and the, the differences that were clearly a part of uh, Kyoto but are not identified uh, here and indeed we saw India actually put forward its own commitments, INDCs, um, which is really a first because we've never seen India before be even willing to discuss this question of GHG reduction, right? So uh, clearly it's a very mixed environment. Uh, I want to thank you, Stuart, for a uh, tremendous uh, discussion around this question of uh, minilateralism, formal institutions, informal institutions. And I urge our podcast audience, of course, to read your feature article, uh, which is a great kind of examination of where we stand in global order 
um, act, actors and arrangements right now. Well, I also want to thank you, uh, Ellen, and uh, and say uh, how much of a pleasure it is and a privilege to be uh, in one of the uh, one of the first uh, issues of Global Summary, which is uh, going to make a great mark uh, and uh, help shed a lot of light on uh, on a burgeoning field. So uh, we owe you a debt too for having uh, taken the initiative to start this magazine. Thanks again, Stuart. This Global Cemetery podcast was hosted by Alan Alexandrov, produced by Harmony Z, music by Kevin McLeod. For more information, visit globalcemeteryproject.com.